Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Many of you are aware of the fact that I've written a book called Psychedelic Medicine, and some of you have sent in questions regarding the book. Presently, we just completed another book. When I say we, I mean our team, our producer, Charlie Deist, and our sound engineer, uh, David Springer, um, have produced another book called Confessions of the Psychedelic Elders. In Confessions, I've interviewed prominent people around the country who have been doing psychedelic medicine experimentation on themselves for the past 30, 40, and in some cases, 50 years, because one of our elders is 90 years old. People have listened to some of those interviews and have sent in questions. So today, we're going to flip roles, and Charlie Dice, our producer, is going to interview me and ask me some of the questions that you listeners have written in, as well as some other questions that he has to ask. And David Springer, our sound engineer, may chime in as well. So with that intro, Charlie, take it away. Thanks, Richard. It's good to be with you this morning. And uh, we're flipping the script and talking about not so much your reflections as the, the original psychedelic elder in our book, but uh, some of these questions that come from a listener, as well as these reflections that I've had just as I've spent a lot of time sculpting and editing the interviews from uh, these luminaries that you interviewed. And I think that what's interesting about this book, rather than a lot of other books of a similar genre, is it's not just an anthology of tripping stories. Those might be interesting, and, and there are a few of those in the book, but it, you really kind of get into the, the deeper backgrounds on these people's lives, and you see how their experiences shaped their journeys, shaped their careers, and turned them into the, the people that they are today. There are certain figures that feature prominently in the book who you weren't able to interview, uh, most notably among them, you might list Timothy Leary, probably at the very top, uh, Albert Hoffman, the chemist who first synthesized LSD, uh, Stan Groff, who is uh, one of the one who's actually still alive, and then Ramdas, aka uh, Alpert, uh, Richard Alpert, who is the colleague of, of Timothy Leary's. And of course, I'm hearing these names uh, as a, a 30-something, it's, it's mostly stories from the past. And so when I, when I think of kind of the, the legacy of the psychedelic counterculture, there are certain tropes that come to us through popular culture and the like, uh, some positive, some negative. And the book, I think, doesn't paint a, uh, a strictly positive or negative picture, but a more nuanced picture than what one might get from the popular culture at large. So I just want to probe a little bit deeper. Uh, maybe we can even just start with this figure of Timothy Leary, who I don't know if you ever met him firsthand, but some of your interviewees in the book had experiences where they actually interacted and, and met with him. Uh, but Timothy Leary is, I think, maybe the, the poster child for LSD uh, advocacy in the 1960s. And he was deep 
demonized by some, idolized by others. Uh, what's the truth in your view of Timothy Leary's reputation? Uh, and and what's what's your take on this this uh, this character who is such a a prominent figure in the history psychedelic history of the 1960s and beyond? Well, I did uh, meet and chat with Timothy Leary uh, one time. I can remember uh, sitting next to him actually at a dinner party in Los Angeles. And what many people don't realize is that Timothy Leary was a prominent psychologist before he got known for his research into psychedelics and had a whole personality theory that he wrote about. And that is how he got his very distinguished position at Harvard, because he was already well known. He had come from the University of California, Berkeley. And it was that Timothy Leary that was a professor, and it was that Timothy Leary that got introduced to psychedelics and started doing the research at Harvard. And my take on the whole situation is that Harvard um, made a huge error, and it was because of the huge error that they made that Leary rose to such international fame and notoriety. And the, the error they made was firing Tim Leary and Richard Alpert, who became Ram Dass. And of course, their fellow colleague, who uh, was not uh, 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 sent away, but uh, was still became very well known, was Ralph Messner. And they, uh, they were fired. And that was an error. And the reason it was is because I believe better they should have kept them in the fold and told them what the problems were, were with the research that they were doing and confined the research to science. And then we would have had a very different situation. Now, whether or not the federal government would have still made LSD illegal, we'll never know. But what happened as a result of the firing was that when you fire two people of their caliber and their distinction from Harvard, which was never been done before, it made national and international news. So overnight, Tim Leary went from being a Harvard professor to being a celebrity. And being a very charming fellow, he made the absolute most of it. So he used the platform of his fame to spread the word of psychedelics. And uh, he then uh, met many, many people of all walks of life, one of whom was an heiress who had a mansion uh, up at a place called Millbrook. And Leary and Alpert moved to Millbrook. They attracted people from all over the country, if not around the world, to stay with them at Millbrook. And it was there that they did their, what might we, what might we say, private experimentation in psychedelics. The people that they attracted to themselves then went out into the world, and these were all, many of them had their own social contacts. Many of them were celebrities in their own right, either in, in, in Hollywood or the stage or in academia. And they spread the word of what was going on there with psychedelics. And so this contributed greatly. And then, of course, being this charismatic fellow, 
uh, Tim would be able to say things that got into the press that ordinary people and certainly not professors would not be able to say and get any attention to. So when Tim came out and said, turn on, tune in and drop out, we don't know how many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands or even millions of young people took it seriously that turn on with LSD, tune into yourself and drop out of your present life. And so that was a major contributor to the, uh, the what we call the counterculture movement. Um, was it negative? Well, the negative part of it was that Richard Nixon got so upset about what he called the hippies, and he was such a racist against the blacks that he went on a campaign and he was he and 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 the presidents before before him you know had these uh, materials not only made illegal LSD was made illegal in 67 it was pre nixon uh, but not only made illegal but were on a campaign of arrests and arresting people particularly for marijuana and particularly black people for marijuana i mean the history of that racist movement of using uh, petty marijuana arrests to put black people in jail is well known, and I won't go into it here. Um, but it was because of the, the, the seminal act of firing him from Harvard, launched Leary into the public eye, which he then very much capitalized on and spread the word, and he became a cheerleader uh, for psychedelics. But also then when the government came down the opposite way, the whole, the whole science of psychedelic medicine got tarnished in the process. And so we've gone through now, what, a 50-year period where there have been obstacles to research and the public has suffered. It's an interesting contrast, maybe kind of a, a study in uh, the different characters for Leary versus Albert Hoffman, two very different personalities and approaches, it seems. Both men, uh, after initially trying LSD, decided that they wanted to continue to experiment. And yet it was only Timothy Leary who really took on this sort of countercultural hippie icon status, whereas Hoffman might have been well-known and revered within certain uh, smaller circles that had an interest in the science. But it seems like a figure like Hoffman, uh, if it hadn't been for, for the Leary types, that perhaps uh, the, the stigma of psychedelics would not have ever been associated with them and that the research could have continued. And I'm not suggesting that the war on drugs was justified in any way. And clearly, Richard Nixon's uh, racist motives, those are, are, are well known, well documented today. But I've heard rumors, maybe you can dispel or uh, confirm whether or not Timothy Leary might have in some sense been a a useful idiot or a dupe of uh, some some deeper and more insidious plot to paint LSD as something that lends itself to mental disorganization. I think a lot of the, the parents or the, uh, the generation before the boomers was looking at what was happening in the counterculture and, and didn't like what they associated with LSD. So my question is, does LSD, is there anything inherently about the chemical and its effects 
go that goes hand in hand with uh, the, the counterculture of the hippies, or could it have just as easily have continued in the garb of the lab coat and the business suit? And along with that, I, I would just note that today in Silicon Valley, it seems to be very popular for uh, people to have a, a part of their mental uh, health or, or even creativity regimen to be using these substances in conjunction with high-level technology projects, and that even was, was probably going on uh, back in the, the 60s, 70s, and 80s uh, in parallel with the hippie movement. But what do you think it was about LSD that, um, that gave rise to tune in, turn, uh, turn on, drop out versus uh, something that w- would have sort of worked within the system more squarely? Well, LSD gives a person a look at other realities. And for those of us, which is almost all of us, who have been living our lives in one reality, we get up in the morning, we have our breakfast, we go to the bathroom, we brush our teeth, we have these little rituals we go through, we go to work, we come home, we, have, we, we eat dinner, we read a book or, or we uh, watch television, we make love with our spouse. I mean, we have these realities that, and, and they're shared realities by almost everybody with, you know, within certain parameters, whether we go to some clubs or we go bowling or we go golfing or we go fishing. I mean, these are all part of life. Then you take this particular substance in tiny amounts and you, one experiences other realities So it's this major wake-up call. Oh, my God. The reality that I live in every day is not the only reality. There are more of them out there. And how many more? My gosh. Wow. And then one starts to, if one introspects, sees things about oneself in a whole different light, with distance, like witnessing Oh, my gosh, look at that habit I have. Oh, look how I do that repetitively like a robot. Oh, my word. I'm going to a job that I hate. What am I doing there? I'm spending my life at a place that I hate. I, I, you know, I've never really confronted that before. I mean, I've sort of known it, but wow, it's right in my face. I don't like my job. Or, wow, I've got serious trouble with my marriage. I'm looking at it now with these different perspectives, and my wife and I aren't really talking to it. So these other realities are right in one's face, including other realities and other ways of looking at such things as the government, including such things as looking at our relationship to nature, you heard one of uh, Jeremy Narby, who I interviewed uh, on, on uh, Mind, Body, Health and Politics. You heard him say that as a young uh, ethnobotanist, uh, anthropologist, he took a psychedelic and for the first time in his life, he realized that he wasn't separate from nature. He wasn't a person who viewed nature. He was part of nature. He realized, as many of us have, I certainly have, that we are nature 
just as trees are nature, just as mushrooms are nature, just as ants are nature. We're all nature. But prior to taking the psychedelic, there was this sense of, I'm going walking in nature, or I'm going to the zoo. We are all part of this in one, and that becomes very obvious uh, when you take LSD and look within. So the answer to your question is that it, it offers us multiple perspectives on ourselves and on the world we live in. And it does so with such impact that there is a likelihood that in many cases, people will make fundamental changes in their lives and in the way they live. And what is scary to the government is that many people who have some political perspective will make fundamental changes in the way they perceive the government and the way in which they relate to the government. And this is very frightening to government because government, of course, wants the status quo. Government does not want millions of people questioning the very structure of the government. So I'll give you an example of that. We don't know how many people have awakened to the fact that Citizens United, which gave corporate, uh, which gave citizen status to corporations, was a very powerful blow against democracy. But I know, having interviewed so many people, that many people took a psychedelic and they focused on polit politics and that particular event was very big in their minds, that realization, and they took it seriously in a way that they never have before. So I think that's some of the answer to your question. Well, it's interesting that you bring up Citizens United at the end, because I think for, for most of what you were saying, I was nodding my head in agreement. And I think that in particular, when it comes to the, the fact that these substances maybe have the capacity to open our eyes to the, the nature of certain political or governmental abuses of power, the war in Vietnam, I think, figures prominently in the, in the book, Confessions of the Psychedelic Elders, in a lot of people's stories, that this was sort of a wake-up moment for them, that they didn't have to be a part of the uh, industri military industrial complex or uh, go work at a job that they hated. Uh, but I think that, you know, if, if we're getting into these other sorts of political questions, uh, some people might be wondering whether psychedelics inherently predispose someone to, let's say, uh, a left-wing political view, which I think is, again, how it's portrayed in the popular culture. Uh, although I think that, you know, they're... they're are still these questions of whether there's something inherent to, uh, to to the experience of oneness that would sort of go in that direction. I think that without veering too far off into a, a side issue, you know, Citizens United was a question of corporate speech, whether Walmart could uh, market a, a, a DVD, I believe, uh, that had, a, you know, some sort of political uh, message in it. And I think that from, from my perspective, which is, I, I would, I consider myself a moderate, uh, but, but not left wing per se. I think that there are 
a lot of questions of uh, you know corporate censorship and today's social media companies, which are purging voices from social media. Uh, from my perspective, though, I think that Citizens United is is one of the least of our worries. But that's probably a different a, a rabbit hole where I, I just I guess the, the my my overall point is. Uh, you know where where would you draw the line of or or how has uh, the psychedelic experience uh, imbued you with specific what are the underlying political principles that you think are kind of inherent to this unitive experience with nature? Um, yeah, we also have anecdotes in the book of the CIA using LSD as part of the MK Ultra experiment in order to confuse or even brainwash individuals. Uh, so we know that with the wrong kind of framing or, or uh, if we put these things into the wrong vessel, they can be uh, seriously abused. Um, so w what are the principles that you take away from that unitive experience in terms of a, a political point of view? Well, that's a great question, Charlie. And I didn't mean to be too misleading with the Citizens United by using the political example, because that would only happen if one went in with the intention of looking at things politically. If one went in with the intention of looking at an architectural problem, Citizens United certainly would not come into your view while you were under the influence of a psychedelic medicine, your architectural problem would. And when Carl Sagan uh, used it for his uh, astrophysics astronomy experiments, he, his mind, I'm sure, was all about astronomy and it wasn't about politics. So I didn't mean to take us astray and say that if you take a psychedelic, you'll think about politics at all. You might not whatsoever. But are there certain fundamentals that you're asking about? Yes, I believe there are. I think one of the fundamentals is this realization that I quoted from Jeremy Nobby, the realization that we are at one with nature. I think the another fundamental that I hear from so many people that I've interviewed and I've experienced myself is a realization that all human beings on the planet are connected in some way, some way that we don't necessarily feel immediately, but that we are connected because we are all one uh, species and there is some form of connection. And so that what in a way, what happens to one person somewhere on the planet is happening to everybody. I think those are the two major takeaways, a sense of connection and a sense of connection with nature and a sense, a sense of connection with the planet, a sense that everything in and on the planet is one living, breathing organism. And everything that we see as discrete are really parts of that one living, breathing organism. And that is something that almost everyone I've talked to who's taken over a certain amount of LSD, and I'd say 250 micrograms or more, uh, acknowledges uh, getting. Those are fundamentals, and they don't have anything to do with politics, doesn't have anything to do with, well, in a way, you could say it, it is political to have that worldview that we're connected, but not in, in the specific way of like naming a particular a piece of legislation and so on. Was that one of the most surprising things that you've learned from LSD, or are there other things that came as an even bigger surprise? When the world came to me in my consciousness, because I'm, a, as a clinician, 
you know, I'm introspective. So I use the LSD when I have uh, 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 introspectively. I'm looking within. I'm wearing eye shades. I'm not looking at the world uh, outside. So I, I never used LSD as a, as a way to have a, a beautiful fantasy trip of what the clouds look like or the trees look like. I looked at them some, but for the most part, it was looking inside. And the, mo the first most surprising thing was the visual, a, a kind of visualization I had of seeing every human on the planet connected by an electrochemical hairnet. And it actually came to me. I could see, I had this picture of all these little, all these, these animals, all these people connected by this big hairnet. And so that, that was, that was, uh, that, that was very, very taking. Um, another uh, a major event was I had a sense that this life and the way we know it is only part of existence that it isn't the the end when we do what we call die, that there is some form of going forward afterwards. And all I can tell you about that form is that I could see the electro, the, 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 the beaming of the electricity of the body going up and merging with what I saw in the sky was a pink Mobius strip of electrical connections as if we all go and join this big Mobius strip of, of connection. And it was a beautiful picture in my mind. And it just led me to, my takeaway was that when we die, it's more of a transition than an end. So I've even teased, uh, I've even teased uh, some of my, my uh, Catholic priest uh, friends by uh, saying to them that I wonder why they give last rites, since they also believe that we go on to something else. And if we go on to something else, why call it last rites? Why not call it transitional rites? So uh, it's not extreme unction. It would be something else. It's fascinating to see how the question of psychedelics impinges on so many other diverse areas from politics to theology. And I actually just finished the book, The Immortality Key by Brian Murarescu, who was a, uh, he was a lawyer trained at Georgetown by Jesuits, raised Catholic, although didn't practice into his adulthood. But he's trying to trace continuity between the, the Eleusinian mysteries, uh, first making the case that those were actually a brew of psychoactive substances that uh, induced this this state, uh, the, the entheogenic experience, we'd call it, or the psychedelic experience, trying to trace actually continuity from these pagan rituals uh, through to uh, the early Christian communities. And I found it to be a, an interesting thought experiment. While I wasn't 100% convinced, I don't think he made an airtight case, uh, he does 
make some interesting reinterpretations of certain sections of the Gospels. And when you're talking about that Mobius strip, it made me think of uh, a reference that he makes to uh, the Gospel of John, where, where Jesus tells his disciples very early on, it's in the first chapter, he says, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And I can kind of picture this uh, infinity of you know movement into this electrochemical field. It's something that most religious people never really have a chance to experience as a, a, a reality unless they're one of these gifted mystics that we read about throughout history who do have that connection. Uh, Charles Bush, who's figured in in two of the chapters, not just one of of Confessions of the Psychedelic Elders, recounts that his first mind-altering experience was receiving First Communion, and he went into a sort of trance. So it's interesting that uh, there does seem to be this... uh, uh, beyond which we can get glimpses of in the in the here and now but uh perhaps we'll only taste fully after death um and i wonder you know to what extent does our conduct in this life have a bearing on how we experience the the hereafter um i think there there are some theologians and people who dedicate their lives to thinking about God who speculate that the places that we call heaven and hell are actually the same reality, just experienced differently by someone who is, say, tormented by a a guilty conscience or uh, for whatever reason is unable to experience, call it God's love, call it uh, the trans, you know, the ultimate transcendental, the Godhead, uh, but that, that, the, the experience of the infinite could be experienced as either blissful or incredibly painful, depending on your set and setting. And it's not unlike, uh, not unlike a psychedelic trip, maybe, where people can have either a, a good experience or a bad experience based on how they come into it. Um, I'm wondering what, what you think of that. I think the experience of heaven and hell is what we make of this life on this earth. And if there is a part of us that transcends and then moves on after we live the, leave this form of living, it doesn't take with it this ego stuff uh, of morality and judgment and shame and guilt. It takes a much more fundamental part of us at a very uh, as a, a, a biochemical electrical uh, a basis, and and that that basis that foundational material doesn't mess around with this, uh, what you might call uh, higher, uh, e- what we call the ego and, and these, these uh, rules that we make, you know, for, for how we treat each other and living and, and, and material like that. I think it, it, it all goes up. And, and uh, I, I, that means that, you know, somebody who's a mass murderer's vibes, you know, or biochemical stuff goes up into the same uh, a bank of of, uh, of souls, if you want to call them that, as somebody who as, as Mother Teresa's. Uh, so I, I don't think that differentiation is made, but but it's uh, what we do get to look at while we're under the influence uh, of of some of these psychedelics is the way in which we relate to one another and the way uh, you know how we treat one another. And I I've often wondered whether. If you give someone who is what we call a sociopath no empathy, who does terrible things to people, whether if we had the opportunity to experiment by giving various psychedelics uh, to these folks, whether they would, quote, grow 
empathetic stature, whether it would they would see what it is that they're doing to others, and they would then take a different uh, a different path. But that's uh, that research is uh, far into the future. We're talking mostly so far about LSD, but there are other interesting psychedelics that have other effects, of course, because LSD is so much of a Although there's material about the spirit that comes up, it's very much of a head trip. It's very much of a consciousness, what's going on in our consciousness. In fact, in some ways, we leave the body with a big LSD trip. In fact, I have, and I'm sort of pure form. I want to tell you one other, you asked about uh, seminal experiences. There was one other seminal experience I've had that I've that some people have shared with me, which is, I went back in time in my consciousness to what in my consciousness in some way that I couldn't see, but I knew was, quote, the beginning. That was the message I got, that I went to whatever you might call is the beginning. And what came to me was that Every bit of wisdom that we have inside of us is part of everybody. And that if we look within and take the time to look within and or are skill trained to look within, we will all know how to conduct ourselves in a way that is most harmonious with each other and with nature and that it's the lack of knowing how to look within and or the lack of training as to how to look within that makes it necessary to have external rules for how we behave. And this is an important distinction because it's a way of saying that everything we need to know we already have what we need what we what's necessary is to learn how to mine properly mine that material it reminds me of the old injunction to know thyself as sort of the 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 first order of importance is knowing yourself and from there you can go in any direction then you can do whatever it is that you want in a way it's uh, if you have the the understanding uh of that combined with the understanding that you know it, it, it's not uh it's not our right to or it's it, we, we can't inflict harm on others which would seem to go hand in hand with what you're saying about if you know yourself and if you know that what is contained in yourself is contained in others then it, it would follow naturally and from there we could eventually have a world where we don't need government necessarily. I think that, you know, the getting from here to there, whether through psychedelics or through other practices, uh, some people in your book, uh, guess, talk about what they know about uh, certain conditions that might make someone predisposed to have a, a physiological problem on certain substances, people with um, heart irregularities, for example, or... Um, you know, a predisposition to schizophrenia or, or bipolar. We also know from Stanislav Grof and his experiences uh, administering 3,000 trips of LSD, which 
you uh, interviewed him about for psychedelic medicine, that certain people have been seemingly freed from their psychoses uh, and schizophrenia and, and things like this uh, through the use of, of LSD and, and other substances. So it's a very murky area. And I think that, uh, you know, most most people can agree that we need more research, not less. Um, now kind of shifting gears to this question of what is the future of psychedelics and how is it going to play out uh, in the current political climate? Um, the question that I have when I'm reading this book is, there's a contrast between existing pharmaceutical treatments for mental health issues, for anxiety and depression, and there's a certain model that seems to go along with that. And it seems to be the model that results from a certain kind of profit-seeking corporate structure, uh, and it's in stark contrast to the more traditional ceremonial model that we find in the remaining uh human populations that have kept this tradition alive. So looking to the future, it seems like there, there are some people who are content to kind of leave psychedelics in this gray area where people can do the sub rosa traditional style of, uh, you know, individual or small group ceremony. And there are others who are pushing. It seems to me like it could potentially go in the direction of the, the big pharma uh, model where you end up subscribing to an annuity of a substance, um, what differentiates uh, your vision of a, a positive way for the future to unfold from this sort of dystopian uh, Brave New World era where everyone's taking their, their soma uh, every day in order to be uh, pacified to the the uh, political environment. Does that make sense? It makes sense until you got to the end because psychedelics are not pacifiers. But everything else made sense. And my answer uh, response is as follows. Capitalism is driving. It's driving everything. And money is driving the planet. And the system, money being an outgrowth of, of capitalism. And no one has yet come up with a system that is better than the capitalist system. So we can't break down the capitalist system and have nothing. You, you know, I know I, very few people, perhaps just anarchists, want to take down a government without having another form of government to replace it. Otherwise, if you do that, you create a vacuum and nature hates a vacuum. So something's going to jump in and take over. And most likely what takes over when you destroy a structure that's already there politically is you're going to get a strong man. And that's what's happening around the world right now. And it's extremely dangerous. Government structures have been destroyed. The United States is facing a destruction of its government. The Philippines, we saw it in Venezuela, various countries in Europe, and strong men are taking over. Strong men who get enough of the people believing that Big Daddy will take care of everything if you put a Big Daddy in charge. And they completely lose sight of the fact that when you put a Big Daddy in charge, you give that Big Daddy the power to chop off a head at will. We went th through that for 1,700 plus years with kings, and we watched how many heads were chopped off. 
including the heads of many of the king's wives. And there's a tremendous danger there. That danger is going to prevail upon psychedelic medicine as well as much as I'm sorry to say that, because there's big money involved. And as the hedge funds move in to capitalizing psychedelic medicine, they're going to want to return on their investment. And so they're going to want to charge money and they're going to charge as much as they can. And so these medicines that promise enlightenment could become just another tool of our capitalist structure. And that is a very unpleasant thought. The positive side is it was not that long ago that a person could take marijuana, for example, as an edible and have absolutely no idea how much they were taking. This was dangerous. It's not that you die from an overdose of marijuana, but you can have a very unpleasant experience. And certainly if you, if you eat it, which is the way you can have the, the easiest way to have an overdose when you don't know how much is in the cookie or the candy or the baked good or et cetera, and then you take it and then you get into a moving vehicle. And I've interviewed people who have had that happen. And all of a sudden it comes on, but it's 15 times stronger than what you thought. That's a problem. Or it's so strong that you can't function. You've got to lay down. Now, nothing really terrible happens if, if, if you've got some experience other than you're going to lay down and see visions and the, and the marijuana itself becomes psychedelic. But if you're a novice to it and you eat one of these too much right away, you're going to get scared and you may even be you know, scared enough to be calling for help. However, what's happened now you can go into a store and get exactly five milligrams, exactly 10 milligrams. Same is true with more traditional psychedelics. I saw a, a, a picture the other day of a package that's being sold in Oakland, California of psychedelic mushrooms. And on the back of the package, it says not only exact amounts to take in milligrams, but it actually says in a few sentences what the effect will be of the differing amounts of milligrams going from what they call mild to heroic. Now, that is a huge advance. So, are there advance, advances from industry stepping in and creating, you know, this kind of information on the package in the same way that we have information about yogurt on the package and bread on the package and nuts and everything else? Remember, that that's a big advance that we made. It wasn't that long ago when you go to the supermarket and you buy stuff, you had no idea what was in it whatsoever. Now you can read about what's in the food on the back of the package. How much carbohydrate, how much protein, how much fat? How many calories? How much saturated fat? How much trans fat? You can read this. That is a huge advance that we made. Now, that came with corporatization because manufacturing can produce that kind of information. So it's a double-edged sword. But the profit motive is a dangerous motive. And it's something that smarter people than all of us have yet to, to figure out what we're going to do in order to, in some way, level the playing field.
because the playing field, I don't know if you want to get me off on that topic, but the playing field needs to be leveled or we, we're in constant danger. The playing field, by the way, that I'm referring to is a socioeconomic stratification and leveling the playing field is the flip side of stratification. Yeah, and, and I, I, part of me wants to split off and just do a whole separate uh thing on that topic right there because i think that we have so much in common uh even though we might come from uh, a different starting place i think that where we can kind of uh converge is is definitely in this uh agreement on the 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 vast problems that result from the kinds of inequality that we have uh in the world and and when it comes to uh, going back to your your comments on uh, on marijuana, for example, I think that this is an interesting case study for psychedelics because they have become uh, more available. Generally speaking, the the, the legal sanctions, uh, unless you're distributing at a at a higher level or if you're in one of the states where it has yet to be legalized, um, the sanctions have have mostly been removed. Um, and you brought me back to my uh, my college days, not so long ago, 2007, around there, when uh, you could, uh, just like you're saying, the, the you know there was the the guy on Telegraph Ave selling the the edibles, and and you had no idea what you were getting, uh, and that that could lead to some some strange and rather interesting experiences uh, for for a, a person young or old. Um, we've seen some statistics of. What's happened in the wake of, of marijuana legalization? The, the least surprising one is that marijuana arrests are down and people who are going to jail, going to prison for these nonviolent uh, drug offenses are down. And that uh, is a very positive thing. As a, a clinical psychologist and someone who's studied uh, chemical dependence and uh, things like drug addiction, what do you think are the risks of... Uh, legalization, and maybe more importantly, of the cultural uh, normalization around certain kinds of recreational uh, usage of these substances for leading individuals who are predisposed to addiction, getting themselves in trouble with something that, that otherwise would have remained out of their reach. I've treated thousands of chemically dependent people. I've never treated anyone who was addicted to LSD. I've never treated anyone who was addicted to MDMA. Now, one could say, well, of course not, because they're illegal, and so people wouldn't have access. No, that's not the case. I treated people who were addicted to cocaine and heroin, and they're, they're illegal. In fact, you might say they're even more illegal. So it's not a matter of illegality or not. It's a matter of if you use heroin or cocaine, you build a tolerance but you want more and more of it. So you keep increasing the amount in order to get the same effect. With LSD, the opposite happens. You use it several days in a row, the effect disappears. You can't triple your dose and get the effect. It won't work because the way LSD interacts with the neurotransmitters is that it wears some of them out. And if it wears out your serotonin, you don't have serotonin left to have the LSD uh, interact with, just to use one example. Uh, and the same is true for the other psychedelics. Furthermore, we have 
deaths, and we know it from emergency room visits from heroin and cocaine all over the United States. And every time we have a cocaine epidemic, which happens about every 20 or 30 years, by the way, historically, because what happens is the new generation forgets that the old generation proved to the world that you better not use cocaine because it's dangerous and that you get respiratory and you know cardiovascular problems and depression, which is the biggest one. And then, of course, you got to buy more and more of it. Um, so they forget and we have these cycles of, of cocaine epidemics. And when we have them, the emergency room visits go up with heroin and with, 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 with cocaine. That's not the case with LSD. You don't hear for the last 50 years that it's been illegal that there's emergency room visits, you know, and en masse from, from LSD. Not only that, you know, in, my, in, in, in our book, Psychedelic Medicine, I, I interviewed the world's foremost authority on LSD, Dr. Dave Nichols, who said straight out, no one has ever died from an overdose of LSD. You can take a dose that's like 10 times larger. I mean, people have taken doses that are so large that it's beyond my belief of what might their, 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 their cosmic internal structure might be like from such a massive dose, but they don't die from it. The same is true from, for, for, for uh, uh, the magic mushrooms, they call it, psilocybin mushroom. You don't die from it. I don't know of any deaths. So they're self-extinguishing. The same is true for MDMA, although you could use to get into MDMA. I've, I, I have some cases of people using MDMA pretty frequently, but then again, wearing out because you it, 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 it's more self-extinguishing. So there is a safety valve built in to the psychedelics. Yeah, the use of uh, psychedelics, particularly microdosing, I think when we get around to being allowed, allowed to do scientific research on LSD in a bigger way, there's a little going on, but really allowed to do it so that a, a many serious scientists get into it. I think what we're going to find out with the microdosing is that it's really serving as a energizer a very mild energizer. And when you use it in what's called a microdose way, meaning sub, sub sensate, you don't notice anything. That is a classic microdose. If you notice something, then you're no longer taking a microdose, then you're taking a tiny bit more than a not microdose. And I personally experimented with this. I know exactly the number of, of, uh, of micrograms that I can feel and how many if I drop down just like one, one microgram, I can't feel anything. And from this experiment, and then what happens when you add two or three or four or five micrograms? So for example, if a person has sub-sensate 10 micrograms, they take 10 and notice nothing except retrospectively retrospectively, meaning at the end of the day, like Ayelet Waldman in her book, A Really Good Day, at the end of the day, she says, oh, I had a really good day. I didn't even notice it, but I did, didn't I? Right? That was sort of the, the, the seminal description of microdosing. And then if you take a little bit more, 11, 12, 13, 14, or 15, if 10 was micro, then you're noticing a little bit more. And from these experiments, I conclude that what microdosing is, is subtle energizing, 
with a material that's very safe. It's much safer than New Vigil, than Pro Vigil, which people are using. Definitely safer than Ritalin, far safer than cocaine. All of these are energizers. People use cocaine primarily because it's a, it's a, a very rapid and also very rapidly extinguishing energizer. It lasts about 20 minutes when you take a, a, a nasal administration. But you get this energy hit. And so then 20 minutes later, you want to take a little more. So you get more energy and you keep it going until, you know, in a, a couple hours later, you've taken quite a bit of it. Um, whereas with microdosing, you take 10 micrograms and, and it lasts, could last six or eight hours without the classic energizing flaw, which is post-high depression. That is the classic flaw in almost all energizers, all medicines that we have that are energizers. You go up the, the, up the hill, you hit the peak, and then you come sliding down the other side. But when you take it often enough, and sometimes just for the first time, when you come down off that peak, you don't come back down to where you were before you started. You come down below it because you've used up neurotransmitter material, and now you're low. So you go into what we call a post-high depression. This is not the case with the microdosing. And I think that is why it's catching on so much, because there's that energizing effect without the post-high depression, without the addiction, without the need for more and more. And uh, it's very powerful that way. And I think there's going to be room, lots of room for some tiny doses of LSD that are going to be used uh, as, as medicines for depression, for narcolepsy, uh, and various other uh, uh, emotional states. Uh, but again, there's nothing like what, what you said before is so true. Research, research, research. We've got to examine these things and learn more. Yeah, and th this I think is a, a fascinating direction, not only for more conversation, but for more research. And I, uh, I remember reading, I think it was in Terence McKenna's book, The Archaic Revival. He advocated a slightly different path forward for the, the, the research in a way. Uh, he advocated for more experimentation by a fewer number, by, by fewer people taking larger doses. So this would seem to be in a way kind of the opposite approach of uh, more trials for microdosing and eventually paving the way for LSD to be prescribed for a variety of conditions, maybe, you know, something like uh, how you know we've seen Ritalin or potentially, uh, you know, in the longer term, it could just be legalized like caffeine or anything else that people would just sort of find their own rhythm. The comparison to caffeine, I think, is an interesting one because personally, I've uh, I've not experimented with LSD, but I've experimented with uh, caffeine a great deal and tried to find the optimal dose. And I've definitely discovered that at larger doses, caffeine gives me that uh, that classic arc that you're describing, uh, which might not be quite as extreme as cocaine, but it still leaves me feeling pretty depleted. And the next morning I wake up feeling like I need an even bigger hit just to wake up and get back 
back to my baseline. And incidentally, I think that I experienced something very similar with marijuana, where on a certain interval, uh, marijuana acts as uh, kind of an upper, or it gives you a little boost of energy and creativity. But the more you use, and if you keep hitting that button repeatedly of getting high, eventually your uh, cannabinoid receptors start to become desensitized. Uh, and so this seems to be how people discovered the microdosing protocol, whether Jim Fadiman's one day on, two days off, uh, from, from not being able to use it every day and instead having to uh, titrate their doses carefully in order to get the, the optimum effect. Um, so in, in the future that you envision, do you think that it will be, could, could there ever be a world where, or are there certain conditions possibly where, where people, maybe we can answer this without more research, but where people would simply take it every day like they currently do, uh, prescription SSRIs or something like that? Well, we just said that it won't happen to take it every day because the system won't allow it. It's a self-extinguishing system. Uh, coffee, by the way, I want to comment on your uh, your coffee experiment. Uh, in the 1980s, I treated 1,500 chemically dependent people, uh, mostly for heroin, uh, cocaine, and alcohol. Of those 1,500, the outstanding withdrawal was a caffeine withdrawal. And it was from two psychologists who came to me from Ohio. And what we discovered when I went into deep, deep interview with them, and they thought they were coming out to the program because they were drinking too much alcohol. Well, it turns out their too much alcohol was two or three glasses of wine with dinner that they had. It was a couple. And they so they would split a, a less than a bottle a night. Well, that's still quite a bit of alcohol when you add it up, because what I have people do in order to get a comprehension of their alcohol use is I have them save either the bottles or the corks for a couple of months and then we look over the box that has the bottles of the corks. So, you know, it's one thing to think, oh, we just split a bottle of wine every night, right? But then three months later, you bring in 90 bottles of wine, <laughs> and it's a whole nother story, isn't it? Because what people forget is a little bit of something over a long time is a lot of something. And a little bit of something, even over a moderate amount of time, can be a lot of something. So three quarters of a bottle of wine, 90 days in a row, <laughs> it's a lot of bottles. Well, this same couple, however, would come to the office and their secretary would make a big pot of coffee. And guess what? She kept that coffee going all day long. And these people had read how important it is to hydrate. So in between patients on their 10 minute breaks, they would drink one or two cups of coffee. By the end of the day, they were drinking 10, 12 cups of coffee every single day, five days a week, five days a week. They, they were absolutely miserable. Their depression was incredible, the post-high depression that they suffered on the weekends when they didn't have that secretary making them the coffee. Their withdrawal symptoms from the caffeine were way beyond what my heroin patients had. They had the biggest headaches imaginable. The only people who came close to the caffeine withdrawal pain were the soft drink Coca-Cola addicts who were drinking two or three or more six packs 
of Coca-Cola a day because it also had caffeine. And they had monster headaches when we took them off the uh, Coca-Cola. So that was uh, some interesting, very interesting data. Caffeine withdrawal can be a bear. And, and, and that was. Oh, yeah, was it's a real thing. I'm going to uh, take a break from from asking questions for a minute here and see uh, what has sprung to the mind of David Springer. Uh, David, you are uh, coming to us from, uh, first of all, where, where in the country are you? I'm in the uh, good old Midwest, heart of America, uh, Kansas City. And interestingly enough, in the course of uh, researching for the Confessions of the Psychedelic Elders book, we, we got in touch with a... A Harvard professor at the Divinity School, uh, a guy by the name of Christian Greer, who's been who wrote his dissertation on a certain uh, subculture of the Midwest that was uh, intertwined with the the Black Panthers, the the so-called White Panthers movement, and he he traces a whole lineage of this Midwestern psychedelic culture. But I think in most people's minds, it's not um, it, it's not two things that they associate with. Uh, Psychedelics are not generally associated with the Midwest. California, uh, in the book, there, there's one interviewee, I believe it was uh, Maria Vittoria Mangini, who, who contrasts the, the West Coast culture with the East Coast culture. Um, we don't learn about a, a Midwest culture. And I'm, uh, I'm just curious to hear from the Midwest, um, having, having grown up there and spent most of your time there, to hear a little bit of, of your perspective on this admittedly, you know, up till now, relatively fringe topic, even as it becomes a little bit more mainstream. I'm curious to hear what some of your questions have been in uh, recording all of these interviews views and, and hearing these uh, stories of how, how psychedelics have uh, changed people's career trajectories, their lives. Um, feel free to, to jump in here with any questions or comments that you've yeah. had through I the mean, process. Definitely. There, there is something very like unique about the Midwest in the sense that I live in a pretty big city, one of the bigger cities in the Midwest. And what what you have here is generally you'll get a, a, an amalgamation of multiple different cultures coming in together um, in the Midwest, kind of creating its own weird sort of subculture within that. Um, so I don't think the the larger populated areas have as much of a stigma as more of like the rural rural and um, even suburban areas that we have here because it's there's quite a stark contrast between you know downtown city and even the politics, um, a lot of um, just even moral standards is very different. I think one thing we see, though, is it's pretty common still to have that pretty negative connotation, that that stigma against um, psychedelics because of just what we've seen from the smaller population, from people who are less um, aware of what the, the effects are and have only really had the, the notion that it's a bad thing and that that um, it, it it's you know it's they don't have the idea that too much of anything is a bad thing they have the idea that oh anything is bad for for psychedelics and I think seeing that contrast between the more populated denser populated city areas versus the rural areas is really interesting because you can easily pinpoint where some of those stigmas are, are coming from um, and where they're kind of originating from from a lack of just understanding and education on the matter which is why I think research in this field is so important because if we don't have the information to give people, they're not going to understand anything except for the emotional impact of it. Oh, it's bad for you. So therefore we shouldn't think about it. And obviously we see like there, there's, there's a balance to that. A lot of, a lot of the talks of microdosing, I think is a really good way to approach it and introducing the concept um, that it isn't something that 
is different than caffeine or nicotine or alcohol to the extent of, you obviously will enjoy a glass of wine, but you're not going to pound uh, an excessive amount of alcohol and go drive. There needs to be a balance to that. And I think one thing I would like to see is the, the stigma, the destigmatization of that in, in our area, which is what I want to ask you, Richard, uh, is how could we, what are ways that we can kind of tear down some of those old notions, those old ways of thinking and understand um, psychedelics and then microdosing and a lot of the healthy aspects in a way that can facilitate proper understanding, normalization, and, and research in that area? Well, what you're teaching me, David, is that the disinformation that has been spread has had such a deep impact that it persists 40, 50 years after it began. And that is very important for us to note. And I'm finding that that's something that's going on all around the world right now, in that disinformation is now uh, spreading more rapidly than it ever has before because of social media. I was enlightened over the weekend when I heard a woman from the uh, Philippines saying that the way that people in the Philippines get most of their information is from Facebook and um, YouTube. And so what the Facebook people and the YouTube people allow and don't allow on their platforms is what becomes news for the people in the Philippines. They don't have NBC and CBS and MSNBC and NPR and, and CNN and Fox News and so on and so on. They are mostly, and they're in these outposts around the different islands. So what they're getting is Facebook and YouTube. And that was really a wake-up call for me because what she was saying is the people who then know how to spread the disinformation on Facebook and YouTube have had a major impact on the population. And she went on to say that there has been a purposeful divisiveness that has gone on that they have never seen before in the Philippines, so that now the people are divided in ways that they never were divided before as a function of being inundated with this Facebook and YouTube information. You know, this was a wake-up call for me. It never occurred to me to think that there are places on the planet that get all their news, all their information, all their everything from Facebook and YouTube. I sort of generalized to thinking, I don't know what I was thinking. Everybody's got radio. Everybody's got a lot of TV channels. You know, they all get CNN, they all get Fox News, they get the crap, the good stuff, the bad stuff, you know, they get it all. But they don't. They're listening on their cell phones and they're listening to YouTube and, and Facebook. And so, wow. So uh, I wonder, you know. Yeah, that's how we see a lot of the the spread of disinformation. Exactly. The, and so we're seeing a lot of the status around that. Yeah. And you're pointing out that the same thing is true in a microcosm there in Kansas City. Whereas downtown Kansas City people, 
may have one worldview and you go 30 miles out into the country and you got people who you have people who have a whole different worldview. And that's fascinating, isn't it? And I might ask the question, what is it that those people downtown have access to that the folks in the country don't and vice versa? It's like they're living in. Yeah. Right. And, and isn't that something? That's, yeah. And that's something that's been true historically, I think, in this country and around the world. Right. That big cities are known for having, quote, progressives and country people are known for being, quote, conservatives. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Charlie, I wanted to come back. To I think we're running out of time. Um, I don't mean to cut you off, David. But you mentioned something earlier, Charlie, when we were talking about Citizens United and got into politics about wanting to continue this discussion, but this isn't the place for it because we've got another topic. I would like us to come back to that at another time. I'd like to, I, I found this program to be quite stimulating. I don't know how it's going to be to listen to, but if it's a, a value, I think the three of us ought to consider uh, more, more programs like this. I agree, and I would be more than happy to to, to do that. And uh, talking with both of you, we're, we're all in different parts of the country. Uh, we're all uh, of different ages, although David and I are closer in age uh, than either of us uh, are to you, Richard. I think that these sort of intergenerational uh, exchanges are important. And also, I think that there's a, for all of our commonalities, there are also some areas where I'm sure we'll find uh, ample room to disagree, and whether the topic is psychedelics or free speech or social media or vaccination or disinformation, I think that the, the we get closer to the truth by uh, by bringing our our heads together and trying to cooperatively get closer to the truth, uh, even if we don't end up uh, nodding our heads in agreement on all of the details. Charlie, can you provide right now for the, our listeners some way they can? send in, easily send in some feedback on this program so that we can get a, a, a response? Sure. I think the the easiest way uh, is going to be by email, if you email producer at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. The other way is that old uh, phone line that is still active as both a text or you can leave a voicemail. That number was 650-TALLY-HO. So make sure you use an alphanumeric keypad. You can just type in 650-TALLY-HO, text or leave a voicemail, and we'll be sure to read some of your questions on the next program. So with that, Richard, I, I think I'm, uh, I'm about tapped out and out of questions for, the, the, uh, for, for today. Do you have anything to, to conclude our broadcast with? Yes. Thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Great appreciation to Charlie Dice and David Springer. You're going to hear more from both of them in the future. Listen in again next week at 9 o'clock. Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm.